It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello guys, welcome to Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. Before we start this week's show, don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can rate, review and subscribe to us. Also, we're on Twitter at IBL Podcast, so get involved with the conversation there. Got a really varied show for you this week. We've got some really interesting conversations. First up this week is our digital editor, Luke Beardsworth. He's only recently joined Bristol Live. He's come from Birmingham, so he talks about why he wanted to join the team here. We also talk about why it's important to accept criticism from readers and how we deal with it. And we also talk about everybody's favourite buzzword, clickbait. Next up, we're going to be hearing from our reporter, Tristan Cork. Tristan has come up with an absolutely fantastic idea. It's something that I've never heard of before, but it's an alternative World Cup. What Tristan's trying to do is he's trying to find one person from every nation taking part in this year's World Cup that lives in Bristol. He's going to try and get them all together and get a lovely team photograph. It's nothing to do with football whatsoever, basically, but we're going to hear from him about that amazing idea. And then finally, on this week's show, we're going to talk to local democracy reporter Kate Wilson. Now, this is a bit of a strange one because local democracy jobs have only recently launched. And basically, we're going to find out exactly what Kate does. And I've also asked her to bring along a story. I have no idea what it is, but she has chosen something that will hopefully set out exactly why her job is so important. Right, that's enough from me. Let's get on with our first conversation. This is my chat with Luke. My name is Luke Beardsworth. I'm the digital editor of Bristol Live. So, Luke, journalism jobs now job titles particularly are weird. I don't know what anyone does anymore because their name doesn't tell you anymore, does it? I mean, apart from reporters, then above that, I don't know what people do. So what does a digital editor do? So the digital editor is essentially the overall editor of the website. Obviously, I work beneath Mike Norton, who's the editor-in-chief of Bristol Post and Bristol Live and Gloucestershire Live and Somerset Live. So uh, he gets taken here, there and everywhere. It's uh, my job to sort of curate what goes on the website and make sure that it's reaching as wide an audience as possible and also as local an audience as possible. So you're relatively new to the Bristol Live newsroom. You've come down from, is it Birmingham you come from? Yeah, I was at Birmingham Live before. What is your background then? So um, I went to UConn to study journalism, which uh, it seems like everyone from sort of the north part of the UK did. Um, from there, I started running a website called Blog Preston, which I still run to this day. It's a hyper-local site which really focuses on the needs of the local community. From there, I moved to Birmingham Mail um, while continuing Blog Preston, and I was a content writer. So I was just working on uh, trending stories, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, and then I became social media editor, which um, I did for a while. I came to the Bristol Post a year ago to help with the new website design and uh, rolling all that out. It was then that I decided that I really wanted to work in Bristol and the Bristol Post newsroom specifically. I sort of set myself a target of coming back here and I was fortunate enough that that opportunity came up rather quickly. So I'm quite happy with how things have turned out. So other than the fantastic team of reporters, myself included in that, what was it about Bristol that made you want to come back? 
I mean, the problem there is that the fantastic team of reporters is one of the reasons why I wanted to come back. And you just like sort of undermine that a little bit. But when I was here, I mean, it was it was really apparent when I was in the Bristol newsroom how dedicated the reporters were and how passionate they were. And it was Michael Young and Tristan Cork stood out in particular at the time of people that were really ingrained in their communities and really listened to what the readers wanted. I visited a lot of newsrooms last year, six or seven in total, and they stood out by a mile. It's that sort of thing that made me want to come back here and work with um, the reporters here. Does that make you a bit surprised then when it's probably no surprise to our listeners or our readers that we get a bit of a kicking sometimes from people, particularly on social media, which is, I suppose, this, we now hear from our readers more than we ever have done. But does that surprise you that we get such a kicking sometimes when you talk about how fantastic our reporters are? It doesn't come as a surprise because I think that uh, established media outlets of any nature are always going to get these criticisms. Uh, I also, I'm not, I'm not completely naive. Sometimes maybe we, we deserve a little bit of a kicking and we do have to listen to the audience. We're not above criticism and we always welcome it. And I think that sometimes people go too far, as we've seen with the um, Tommy Robinson coverage and some of the criticism reporters have got for that. But I think overall that, you know, people are entitled to their opinions. And as long as we engage with them when they're giving their opinions, then it's, it's OK. It's a, it's a good balance. Do you think the way that we the way that we interact with our readers, but also the way that we tell them stories is changing then as well? As we move more online and there's more focus with getting your news from your phone, do we need to reevaluate the way that we interact with our readers? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. We we do present our stories differently now. We put them online because we do have all these, um, and not to bore the audience, but we do have all these engagement metrics and things like that. So we, we know how people prefer to consume their news nowadays. So we do present stories a little bit differently than, than we would have traditionally, even like as much as three or four years ago, things have changed dramatically. As you know, you're now in charge of Bristol Live. What would you like to see it become and what do you see it as currently? So... <sighs> Like I say, the, one of the reasons I wanted to come to Bristol Post, which is now Bristol Live, is because I, I think that the reporters are already really ingrained in the communities and addressing their needs. I think that we can continue to do that and grow that and really listen to them and find out what the issues are that really matter to the readers and make sure we're doing it. And we can do that in a really focused way. And I, I think because of, because of the way engagement metrics work, we previously would have felt ob- obligated to cover certain stories, which uh, it turns out people don't actually want to read about. And, that, and it's not to say we're only going to do things that people are going to read in en masse. But if there's something that people are telling us they're not interested in, then we're not going to do that. We're going to do the things that they are interested in and focus on them. And I think traditionally newspapers haven't done that. They've just decided what they think people are interested in and reacted accordingly. I think that's a trend people are seeing across the country in newspapers, isn't it? Is it in the past, we've sometimes written stories to fill space rather than to engage audiences because when you've got a newspaper you've got x amount of pages that you've got to fill but obviously when you're selling the newspaper and there's a pay, you know there's a story on page i don't know four or five you never know how many people read that story but that's something that's completely different now isn't it where we put a story up on the website and we get all sorts of information about it that we've never seen before yeah and, that, and that's really important because i've only ever worked um in digital it's it's not alien to me I can't imagine working without these this, this information in front of you where you know what people are interested in. And, of course, you've got to do that in a really organic way. You've, you've got to promote your stories in the right way. And um, I'm sure we'll get onto this later, but I, I don't believe that sort of tricking readers into reading certain articles is the way to do things. I don't think that's going to like create a sort of sustainable product that people are actually interested in reading. That's another trend that we've seen nationally and internationally as well, isn't it, really, is that as we've gone online, some places have tried to really like you say, trick readers into opening the story. They pose a question that they don't really answer. And it basically just seems to alienate your audience, doesn't it? Is that something that we are not at all keen to do and we're trying to actively avoid? 
Yeah, well, I think the pertinent point is uh, there are there are examples of stories where we we to encourage the reader to click on the story, and it's really important to us that they do, and we can't hide that. We we do want readers to come onto our website and read our stories. I think what you said is really important. So we what we want is if, if readers do feel inclined to click on a story based on its headline, for example, then we do answer the question and we do deliver something that is substantial and of value to them. I sort of understand if readers get frustrated that they have to click on the story to get the full details, and but I don't think I don't really class that as clickbait. I think clickbait is something that really like disappoints the reader when they're going into a story. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It's something that I've seen quite a lot is where people comment on an article or they tweet an article and they say this is clickbait, and you think that's not clickbait. It's just a good headline. You know, the point of a headline is to draw in readers and to get you to want to read, and that's something newspapers have done forever. You know, as long as there's been front pages, there's been headlines that want you to read the full article and people go, oh, that's clickbait. But that's not the strictest definition of clickbait, is it? You know, the strictest definition is, you know, such and such did this and you won't believe what happened next. And it doesn't deliver on what it promises, basically. I mean, if you take clickbait, literally, it's just giving you a reason to click, which is, which I guess we sort of do. And maybe in in the most literal sense, that's sort of accurate. But I I think that clickbait at its worst is really disappointing with the reader. And we, we do avoid that. And we have discussions about avoiding that wherever we can. One of the other things that people bring up quite often, sometimes it's other news organisations who don't quite aren't quite on board with the way that we work, I suppose, but is national stories that we run. And I mean, newspapers have always had national pages, haven't they? What do you see about, what do you see the future of national stories on local websites is really? I mean, you're answering the questions as you're asking, <laughs> yeah, asking them. That's yeah. poor interviewing technique, isn't it? <laughs> um, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Newspapers have always had um, national sections and always covered national news. I understand when readers come to Bristol Live, they say, well, this is Bristol Live, I expect Bristol News. But the way we see it is we, um, we we expect to deliver a product that is relevant to the people of Bristol. It's not a case of it has to be stories that have happened in Bristol. You you know how the newsroom works. We we don't have someone sat there doing national news all day. We, we What we do is if we decide that a national story really has a place on the website, then we'll do it. And we don't do that blindly. We don't sort of sit at our desk doing national news all day we have a, a, a team of brilliant reporters that are doing really strong local st- stories all day and then we have some national news it's not a case of one or the other it's both what we also find as well is that people are interested in those stories is that something that you notice that when we we don't do these national stories because we think that someone might you know someone somewhere might be interested in it it's a case of people in bristol are interested in these stories and will read them from us yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you look at a really a really good example is we we cover Glastonbury, and we and we all, I, I, I believe the Bristol Post has always covered Glastonbury, and that's not on our traditional patch, but we do it because people in in Bristol are interested about that, and we will occasionally like stray into Gloucestershire when we're covering stories and things like that, and again, that's the same. And there was a, there was an example a few weeks ago where we covered a story in Newport because we know that a lot of people from Newport commute to Bristol, and therefore they are interested in it, and vice versa, people from Bristol are interested in Newport. It's not a case of we need to keep our uh, sort of mindset inside the boundaries of what is the city of Bristol. It's a case of let's just create a website that fulfills the needs of the people that come to Bristol or commute to Bristol. Does more than one thing, basically. Does local news really well, but also you can get your national from us if you fancy it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we do so much more than just what, what, what was traditional news. We still do traditional news very well, I think, uh, but the we, we, we have lots of things on top of that. We provide a lot of information content and that you wouldn't have traditionally thought of going to your newspaper for, but it's useful. And a sort of thing, if people need something, if people if people are, for example, putting something into Google, why should Bristol Live not, not provide the answer to that rather than someone else? Another thing that we talk about quite a lot in the newsroom is what we call trending content, but 
to be honest, that probably means nothing to anyone else outside of our room, basically. But what is trending content? I guess trending trending content often falls into that category of informational content, but it, it, it's trending content is just a, is just our way of describing national stories. If we see something uh, is on the Mirror website and people are clearly interested in it, we can measure the people in Bristol that are reading that article on the Mirror, and then we can ask the question, why aren't they reading that story on on Bristol Live? What there is is this sort of two-way relationship. So if something massive happens in Bristol, the Mirror will cover it. But if they've got something that we know that people in Bristol are interested in, we can have we can have that story on our website as well. Why do we do these trending stories then as well? Why do we sort of follow these stories that are happening anywhere around the country? It might not even necessarily be news. Sometimes they're sort of explaining articles, aren't they, that will give you something about it. But why do we put those out? Just because the we, we know that the people in Bristol are interested in it. And obviously the p- people who hear me say that will say, well, your ultimate goal is to get pages. And it's like, well... Yeah, that sort of is the ultimate goal of it. We do need page views, but we need we need them to be we need them to be uh, of value. They can't be flimsy page views. Which you know, if if you did engage in clickbait, those page views are not valuable. But if you provide something that people are proven to be interested in, then that's valuable. So so there's every reason for us to do that. We're trying to build a loyal readership. Then is that the thing? Because we don't want to give people articles that just won't deliver what they promise, basically. If you can't build a loyal audience, then, you know, where, where's the business going to be in, in five years? We, we, we need to build a loyal audience. We're, we're doing that thanks to the fantastic work of our reporters, I, I would say. And um, our, similarly, our sports team are, are doing some great work and our, and our entertainment team are doing the same. So, uh, yes, the loyal audience is the most important thing to us. Luke, thank you very much for your time. Cool. Really interesting chat with Luke there. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. Next up, we've got reporter Tristan Cork, who has come up with this absolutely fantastic idea where he is trying to find one person from every nation in the World Cup that is living in Bristol. Let's hear from Tristan now. Tristan, I am really excited about this one. I've been seeing it all over social media. You're talking about it and searching. Uh, Tell us about what you've been up to. Okay, so um, it's the World Cup in football, which starts in about two weeks. And... I was chatting with my good friend, Neil Maggs, who you had on here in the podcast last week, didn't you? Absolutely. Funny guy, um, full of ideas, and he's always got something happening in his brain. So I was chatting to him about it really late one night on like Messenger or something. And we were talking about the World Cup and how it could be covered by local media. Because obviously... We don't have any players, I don't think, from Bristol, apart from Horda Magnusson, who's playing for Iceland. Now, so, this is all, this basically most of this is going to go completely over okay. my head because I'm not. A so, apart from, the, yeah, apart from the football itself, how do you cover? And what we've done traditionally with tournaments in the past is to go to the bars where people are watching it and do sort of, you know, I remember at the Euro 2016, I videoed the crowds watching an England game in the walkabout bar when they England beat Wales, um, which was pretty mental. But what would be a good way of doing it? Um, we sort of started talking about how there's 32 nations in the World Cup and Bristol is a place where surely there are people from those 32 nations living in Bristol who were originally born or from those places. It was almost like a challenge to start with. Would it be possible to find somebody from each of the 32 countries. And once that challenge was laid down in our chat, we decided that we would have to do it. And then once we decided we'd have to do it, it'd have to be done in a way that we could get, uh, we, we thought, wouldn't it be amazing 
to get everyone together if once we found them it's not good enough to just find them on the social media and say oh yeah that that so and so over there is from brazil but it would be great to get them all together and wouldn't it be an amazing celebration of all the different nationalities that call bristol home and a be a big celebration of how bristol is hopefully a welcoming place for those people to live and they like living here which is why they're here so what's the plan then? I mean, I've heard talk of maybe like a little five-a-side tournament or something, yeah, but no. then a few people have said, I'm not really that interested in football, but yeah. I am from such and such company. Yeah. So what's the so, plan? So we, we, the plan is that we get everyone together um, at College Green on the Sunday before the World Cup. So in um, a week and a half's time, maybe a week's time for, for a big photo. And then once that, once we've got them all there, we can have some fun. So we're going to do lots of video and stuff and, you know, sort of introduce, get people to introduce themselves and, and things like that. And then I don't, we haven't firmed up exactly what's going to happen. We've got crazy ideas that probably won't be able to be possible. One thing I've, in my head, Neil's got stuff, different stuff in his head. In my head, I think we need to keep it simple and it would be amazing if we could play the World Cup, like put everyone in the groups that they're actually in, in the football and then have them play each other and then have a quarterfinal, semi-final, final, but do it in with rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> so we're keeping the competitive edge there, yeah. Yeah, so rock, paper, scissors is something that's universal, and also you don't need any skill. <laughs> um, and it's got no... So the whole idea of the Bristol World Cup is not to be about football, really. It's about a celebration of people. Um, so why not do that, have a bit of fun? And also, what we once we've got everyone together we would like to keep it going through the tournament. As the tournament progresses, there's going to be a story in the World Cup that always is in the real World Cup of a little nation that does better than people thought. And, you know, some. I remember one World Cup, Senegal beat France, for instance, which was just unheard of. So everyone was like, where's Senegal? Tell us about Senegal. We've got somebody from Senegal this time. Um, so we can talk to them about what, you know, when that happens or whoever it is, if it's Iceland or Saudi Arabia or Costa Rica or whatever, um, we can go back to them. And then as the pro tournament progresses and it goes to the quarterfinal, semifinal, final, it takes a month, the World Cup. So we've got uh, a long time to kind of go back and explore different stories that have come out of the real World Cup with the people from Bristol. And also the other good thing is I, one of the things I love about the World Cup is going to somewhere to watch a game with, that's not England, with a nation, with the people from that country getting involved. So can you imagine watching the World Cup in like a Mexican restaurant when Mexico are playing? It would be, it, I know it's going to be great to do. So it's a celebration of the, the kind of whole tournament as well. So we hopefully will be able to tap into that as well and get involved in, sort of going to places where they're going to be, you know, where do all the Peruvians go to watch the World Cup in Bristol? That kind of question. So the possibilities are endless. At the moment, it's just a question. At the moment, I'm just focusing on getting 32 people in one place at the same time um, from each country. So when did you start doing it then? We started um, a, less than a week ago. And how are things going so far? They're going better than I ever dreamed. <laughs> So it did, it did really take off on Facebook. I, all I've done is put a post on Facebook, my Facebook, and a tweet. And the tweet itself, the original tweet, I did it turned it into a bit of a thread explaining what it's about. But 
the original tweet has been tweet, retweeted more than 250 times. And I've set up a Facebook event page and I've basically had, uh, concoct, uh, constructed a list of everyone who's volunteered from which country and I'm emailing them to kind of keep them informed. So I've got so far, I think out of the 32, I've got about 20. But the ones who are left might be the most more challenging ones. The ones who are left are, I'll read you the list, Uruguay, Saudi Arabia, that's going to be a hard one. Mm. Iran and Morocco, although I'm pretty confident I've found them. Um, Croatia, should be fairly easy, I would have thought. Nigeria, Costa Rica, which is a tiny country. And if there are people from Costa Rica in Bristol, please let me know. Serbia, I think I've got. South Korea, Panama, again, another tiny country in Central America. And Japan, which shouldn't really be too hard. And I haven't really... So the thing is, I haven't really started going out and sort of approaching, approaching people. You've been lucky enough to just get people coming yeah. to you so far, then, yeah. So it's literally just been a one Facebook post, one tweet, and it's all come back. I probably now need to go f- out there and contact the university and contact. There's an amazing project in Bristol called Ninety One Reasons or Ninety One Something. It's Ninety One Something. They use the study that found that there was 91 languages spoken in Bristol as a first language to explore and kind of get people together to celebrate culture and cooking and loads of stuff. So they are, I mean, I've, I've um, got in touch with them already and they are already helping. Um, and I probably need to go out now. Now I've got specific, like the last 10 countries or something, I will go out and say, right, I need someone from Iran. And you can go to like language schools. Yeah. And there's all sorts of possibilities, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. For yeah. Trying to track people down. How have people reacted then? You said you've only put out two bits, but it yeah. sounds like you've had a phenomenal reaction. Yeah, it's been really good. Everyone who has um, got in touch and said, I'll take part, have been really up for it. They think it's a great idea and they really want to do it. And they're like, can we bring our friends along from Colombia? Can we, you know, do we need to bring flags? I'm like, yeah, bring flags, bring anything, you know, just like what a celebration it can be. Um, and then a lot of other people have, have kind of th- thought that's a great idea and I've had a lot of really positive um, feedback and it's really important to kind of say that this isn't really about a story as such it's not like a a thing that we, when we are going to use it in the newspaper and put it online but it's just more about a kind of getting everyone together and having a celebration really and you know if it, and it's also also it is still a challenge in terms of can it be done can it be done can we find ev- everyone are you worried about everyone being there on the day because you go through all this work yeah. and then you know sort of one person goes oh sorry yeah I've, yeah I've had to go shopping instead yeah I'm thinking seriously now as I get more and more people coming back saying I'm Spanish and I've got I've got someone from Spain already I might have reserves <laughs> I might I might say right, subs, get two, subs, yeah. yeah get two people in and you know it might well be that you get two people from Spain and one of them goes do you know what I'm really good at rock paper scissors <laughs> <laughs> and they get oh, you get picked I was in the society at university yeah, I've got yeah. plenty of experience yeah. so that is going to be the key thing they have to I mean I'm emailing people out saying you know can you be there at this time and people are saying yeah yeah but you know what it's like on the day you know they might go oh do you know what I need everyone to kind of be emotionally engaged in this so that's going to be a, the next challenge next week it's going to be firming people up I've got a feeling that this is going to go everywhere at some point. You know, I've never heard of anything like this before. And I've, I've got a feeling that, you know, in years to come, people will be doing this everywhere around the country. Yeah. It seems like such a massive idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so simple, but at the same time, it's, it has proved quite challenging. And um, we'll see. I don't know if it's going to work or not. I still i am not sure. We might get to three countries left and fail. 
Um, in which case, do you know what? I, this time next week, I might well be phoning up BBC Points West and go, get me on the programme. I need to find a, <laughs> I need to find a Panamanian. <laughs> so who knows? I don't know. Um, and the other thing is that I might find somebody and they might not want to do it. You know, someone from Peru. Oh, I've got someone from Peru. Someone from Costa Rica might just go, do you know what? I'm, I'm away. I can't. I, I work on Sunday. You know what I mean? So it it's going to be really tricky. I mean, I love stuff like Dave Gorman, you know, the comedian Dave Gorman. Yeah, he yeah. does stuff like this and um, and sort of challenges himself to do something crazy like that. And and I love that sort of thing. So it's sort of that, it's tapped into that. So where can people get involved if they want to come forward? Where okay. should they go? Okay, so there is a Facebook event page on the Bristol Live Facebook page. So if you just go on events and it'll be the only one there, I think. They can go to my Facebook or my Twitter and find it on Twitter. Just look look for the hashtag Bristol World Cup on Twitter and you'll find it. And you can DM me on Twitter. You can Facebook message me or you can email me. And my email address should be all over my social media somewhere. Uh, just get in contact. I will then send you an email to say, here is what you have, you, what's involved. And then if you are from Panama... Please get in touch. <laughs> yeah. We will include some links as well in the show notes, but just in good luck, I think you might need it. Yeah, I hope not. I think it'll be all right. I think I'm, I'm quietly confident now. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Cool. Cheers. What an amazing idea from Tristan there. Thanks so much to him for explaining it to us. Finally, we're going to be talking to Kate Wilson. She's brought a story along. I don't have a clue what it is, so we're going to hear from her. She's a local democracy reporter. Now, that job didn't actually exist a year ago. She's going to explain what she does. Let's hear from her now. My name is Kate Wilson, and I'm the local democracy reporter for Bristol and North Somerset. So a year ago, your job didn't actually exist, did it? It's been a long time coming through these local democracy jobs. I've heard about them a while back. But can you tell us what you actually do? I can try. Big question. Um, <laughs> big question. <laughs> no, this, this is a question that everyone seems to ask. Um, I guess technically what our, the brief is that we are supposed to do is plug the democracy deficit that there seems to be in um, journalism at the moment, particularly, I guess, print journalism, um, where... I guess newsrooms nowadays are so stretched and the reporters are so stretched with having to take on um, all of the digital side of things. Plus, you have to be photographers nowadays. You have to be subs in some newsrooms nowadays as well. And so there's not a lot of time for reporters unless they work 24 hours a day (laughs) to go to meetings and, um, you know, follow up and do really in-depth, I guess, pieces of journalism that I know every journalist would love to do, but unfortunately don't always have the time to be able to do it. So technically we are supposed to come in, local democracy reporters are supposed to come in and sort of, I guess, plug that democracy deficit and attend all these council meetings that last three hours that you may only get one story out of that, you know, no no report wants to do that. So when you're doing got... the rest of us reporters yeah. a favour, basically. We get to go home on time while you guys are there late at night, no, basically. Yeah, well, we're quite lucky in that we get to, our hours are quite good. Like we can come in later when we've got late meetings. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of attending all those meetings and following up and being able to do, I guess, longer pieces. And we have the, we're not really to sort of a strict deadline that I imagine you are too when, when it comes to, you know, when your piece has to go out or a print deadline necessarily. It is, I mean, within reason, when we can file, we file. So if it takes a couple of days for a comment to come back or we want to wait for the person that's off on holiday to come back and actually do a proper 
like, you know, tell us about, you know, a scheme or something that's happened properly, then we kind of had the luxury to do that. So it's basically about council meetings and other public body meetings that are taking place that aren't being covered traditionally just due to, you know, staff in numbers, I suppose. Yes, yeah. You come in and like you say, plug that gap and you sit through and hold these bodies to account then. Is that fair to say? I think, yeah, I should have probably said that. Yeah, holding (laughs) holding public bodies to account is probably the main number one thing that we're doing. Um, So yeah, so um, council, so I will cover Bristol City Council and North Somerset Council, but also it's kind of the parish councils. So I'm going to Portishead Town Council to night and then I've been to Long Ashton and where else Clevedon so you know it's all of these uh, things that reporters definitely don't go to because if you're you know the main councils you want to cover are the big ones Bristol and Wilson, but actually a lot of stuff happens at those councils and that's actually where a lot of residents go to kind of feel heard as well more so than they do at sort of the big meetings that they may not feel as comfortable speaking at and they maybe go where their local councillor, you know, their local parish councillor who lives down the road from them, who they feel they can go and say, well, actually, can you go to North Somerset or Bristol on my behalf and tell them about this and that we're not very happy about this or we'd like them to do this. And so actually a lot of stuff happens at those kind of smaller meetings that maybe people don't know about. So it's it's funded in quite a strange way as well, isn't it? It's quite a, a different kind of scheme where it's, is it paid for by the BBC? Here's the tricky part. <laughs> Technically, our salaries are funded by the BBC. So they've put, I think it's, I've looked this up, I think it's £8 million into this to fund 150 local democracy reporters across the country. And that pays for our salaries, I believe. But it, go, it doesn't go, so we don't get paid directly by the BBC. The money goes to the local newspapers. For example, here it will go to Bristol Live. But it's from BBC Money. <laughs> and yet you are based in our office. You work quite yeah, closely with yeah. some of the guys yeah, here definitely. as well. I mean, we're quite lucky here, I think, because we have um, three people, three local democracy reporters in the office, which is really nice because we kind of have a little democracy team <laughs> going on. But um, we are very much submerged within the sort of Bristol Live newsroom as well. We sit around all the other reporters like yourselves and can kind of say, because the thing is, we're coming, I'm from Bristol originally, but... I haven't lived in Bristol for five years and we're coming into the the job and I don't necessarily know about all of the council issues or issues that have come up. And so it's actually really helpful to have a chat with somebody who's been doing this job for a year, two years, three years, however long, and say, oh, actually, I covered something similar to this last year. This has been going on for a while. You might want to flag this up with them sort of thing. And in theory, it should complement the work that we're doing, the work that, you know, and vice versa, that we should play into each other. Well, this is the thing. So our copy so the copy that local democracy reporters produce i produce goes on to a wire there's local democracy wire and um it's available to all the media partners so bristol live can obviously use our copy because we're in their newsroom and kind of the reporters can use bits of our copy as well when they are writing stories that are similar or kind of a follow-up that they've been involved in and yeah it's kind of we're there as i said it's not just for the BBC or for Bristol Live, it's for sort of everybody to use. So Bristol 247, Western Mercury, anybody that, you know, doesn't want to attend a, I don't know, three-hour homes board meeting and <laughs> say, oh, actually, this was came out, this was really interesting from it. We can use that. It's kind of for everyone. What was it about the job that appealed to you then? Why was it that you wanted to give it a go? I think, so I was doing something similar. So I, my job before I came to Bristol, I was working at the Bournemouth Echo. And I was covering, I was a um, chief reporter for Paul down there. So I was covering, my main job was to um, cover Paul Council, Paul Borough Council and attending meetings and trying to, you know, hold that council to account was technically what they, my editor wanted me to do. 
but I was doing that while also being a normal news reporter and lots of other stuff comes up and you're having to write how many page leads for the paper plus all support copy and if it's between do I want to write three page leads and attend a two-hour licensing meeting and then maybe go home at like 10 o'clock at night tonight and then start again at seven o'clock in the morning or do I skip the meeting do my page leads and maybe try and pick it up tomorrow so you're kind of doing the job but you're only doing it sort of I guess halfway so the idea of being able to do this in my home city and actually the only job that I am allowed to do is holding public bodies to account. I can't write anything else. And so it's really nice to just be able to do the job, but to be able to do it 100%. And so what kind of stories have you been covering then? I understand that you've been at something that was related to homelessness recently. Yeah, so I was at the Homes Board last week. So that's Bristol City Council has a Homes Board um, and it is, let me get this right, it's run by, it's obviously a council public meeting and the Cabinet Member of Housing, Paul Smith, runs it and it invites various home associational people linked to the homes market. So it can be, so St Mungo's related to homelessness or, or shelter attend there, they've got a representative there, or it can be housing associations or like Right Move, for example, go there. It's sort of looking at homes and the homes market across the board and everyone kind of comes there. I think it was only, I think it was only set up two years ago, so I think it's quite a new scheme. So technically the big decisions aren't being made at these meetings and so they may not be on everyone's radar to attend them, but they're actually quite interesting. Like you said, I went there and they were discussing um, rough sleepers and homelessness and there was a big presentation from um, somebody from St Mungo's who talked about actually while it may not look like a lot is being done in the city to support homelessness and to support rough sleepers, there's so much going on in the background. And he gave kind of a 30 minute presentation about every single thing that the city and, you know, the council, St. Mungo's and voluntary organisations. There are so many kind of voluntary organisations in Bristol um, that are doing a lot behind the scenes. But obviously, a lot of people only just see, you know, people sleeping in the streets, etc. So they don't actually get to they don't see all the work that's going on behind the scenes. So that, that was quite interesting. So have you found then that going to these meetings that people don't usually cover, that you're digging up some really interesting stories that yeah. never would have come out unless you were there, basically? Well, I think so, yeah. So for the Homes World one and the story that came out this week, I got from we're talking about sort of like rough sleepers and homelessness and begging and the way people's perceptions of it. And they were talking, it was just an off-the-cuff line talking about how... Um, somebody was saying that it's quite a bad kind of public perception that all the public see is enforcement officers removing homeless people and rough sleepers from the city centre. Um, and uh, the guy from St Mungo said, well, actually, Bristol's a soft, seen as a soft touch when it comes to um, homelessness and rough sleepers, and not just in terms of enforcement, but in terms of the people of Bristol who are quite sympathetic. And he pulled out a number and said that a, you know, somebody begging near Temple Meads in rush hour can make £150 in an hour, which is what I, you know, that's quite a shocking figure when you think about it, really. And it's it's kind of little lines like this, not on an agenda. It's not, you know, publicly out there. But if you attend these meetings and, you know, people are having a genuine discussion about an issue and these things kind of come out and the only way you can get those stories and get that information is by being there at that meeting. Are you finding some interesting reactions from people at these meetings as well? Because obviously they would have gone for however many weeks and months and years with no one coming in and then all of a sudden you're sat there at the back scribbling away and they must think, oh, there's someone here now. Yeah, Bristol not so much because I think Bristol City Council is quite well covered by the media. So you always have sort of at full council and cabinet, you always have, um, you know, Bristol Live and you have BBC there and Bristol 247. So they're quite well covered. 
the homes board, yeah, I kind of sit there and they're like, everyone's turning around and looking at me like, who's that? <laughs> and uh, and then they see the articles on the paper probably and online and they're like, oh, okay, that, that was a reporter. <laughs> um, North Somerset was, um, there was a, we got called in to have a meeting um, with the leader sort of saying, oh, who are you? What are you doing here? Sort of thing, which is, you know, perfectly fine. We're showing up at these meetings and it's always that awkward thing. You don't really want to walk into a meeting and sort of announce yourself like, hello, I'm a reporter. Because <laughs> you get sat slightly to the side at a yeah, lot of meetings yeah, as well, yeah. don't you? They've set up a bench there that usually is empty, I suppose, yeah. at a lot of these meetings and now all of a sudden it's being used. So they, yeah. they're going, oh, there's someone sat at that press bench, but I don't know if they're press or yeah, not. Yeah, exactly, you know, or... <laughs> And and I think, you know, you, they always see the same sort of regular reporters there, technically maybe from sort of like the Western Mercury, North Somerset Times, and then it's kind of a fresh face and they just want to know who you are. And I don't think there's anything wrong, wrong with saying, who are you? And you explain to them. And actually, most nearly every sort of like North Somerset council I've spoken to has been really like, oh, great, that's really interesting. It'd be great to kind of have you around and kind of covering what you're doing. So I think from councillors and sort of like local authorities' point of view, and even sort of like, you know, we're covering health boards as well. A lot of stuff is kind of the negative stuff that gets reported. And, you know, I think that is part of the job when you work at council that, you know, members of the public are not calling up newsrooms. I'm yet to receive a phone call saying, the council collected my bin this week. I'd really like to write something in the paper about how, uh, how I'm so happy that they collected my bin uh, yeah, on time. I don't think anyone would want to take that call, would <laughs> yeah, they? Like, and, you know, you don't get people do not call you and say, unfortunately, you know what, this was... They did a really good job. I mean, you get it more in sort of health and people write about how, you know, doctors and nurses are brilliant, but you don't really get that with local authorities. And I think for, you know, for Bristol and North Sum, I've felt especially, are quite glad that, yes, we're there holding them to account. And I don't think anybody is not happy with that. I don't think, I, you know, that I don't think there's a lot of like shady business going on behind the scenes. I think there are some things that maybe need to be brought to light and a lot of stuff that maybe goes on in the background that should be more be done more in a public sphere so that more people are aware of it but then maybe that's kind of the journalist's job as well to go there and say this is going on and ask those questions um but I think they're quite happy to actually have the good stuff come out that we're covering and I've written some quite nice stories about both Bristol and about both North some that I think they're quite happy to have us there for and write about kind of the positive as well as the negative so how have you found the job so far then? How long have you been doing it? And uh, um, I think I've just had my three month review. Three months. So, <laughs> so have you been enjoying it for the last three months? Then? Yeah, I have. It's one of, you know, it's one of those weird things because I've never um, come into a newsroom and not really felt like part of the newsroom before. And this is not in a negative way for Bristol, but just in terms of, obviously you're not in the day to day. We're not in the morning briefings. We don't necessarily know what's going on online and in the paper. We have our stuff that we are planning to write that day and we write it and we file it and we go to our meetings. We're out of the office for sort of however many hours of the day holding meetings. So it was just kind of getting used to how this scheme works within the kind of newsroom environment. But luckily, you know, Bristol has been very welcoming and I, I love working here and the team's really nice. And yeah, it's been great. Really, really enjoying it. Kind of found my feet now. I think it always takes in a new job a little bit of time to sort of find your feet and, you know, build up sort of like relationships and some banter with all the other uh, reporters that you're there with and the news desk. And, you know, every news desk likes to work differently and like to see different things in your copy. So it's just kind of getting used to when they say, oh, can you change that? And you're like, oh, I've written it that way for however many years before. But no, that's fine. They like it that way. And it's oh, just, I still struggle yeah, with that, to be honest. Yeah, and it's, yeah, just, it's just getting used to how different teams like to work. And so I think that always takes some time. Plus, this was a brand new scheme and not everybody necessarily knew 
what it was or who we were and how we were going to fit into the newsroom dynamic as well. But now it kind of seems that we're all sort of really settled and everyone seems quite happy, quite happy that we're here and we're quite happy to be here. So yeah, it's, it's really good. But now we're, although unfortunately now we're getting into the summer period where all the council shut down for the summer. You have to start <laughs> so, doing a bit even more digging. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how the next three months go. Kate, thanks for your time and keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Now, I hope you find that conversation really interesting. You might have seen the words local democracy reporter written around somewhere. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into what that is. Right, that brings this week's show to an end. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget all the boring stuff. You can follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. Also, Apple Podcast, search Inside Bristol Live. You can rate, review and subscribe to us there. The show is produced by Matt Alder, so thanks so much to him. That is everything. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.